Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 rights one call the following program is sponsored by the national prayer chapel blind 
the day of Pentecost is being fulfilled they were all with one accord in the same place and suddenly there came out from heaven a noise as the rushing of a mighty wind it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues parting off as fire and sat upon each one of them and they were all filled by the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues of a different kind as the Spirit was giving to them to speak out. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel and with me in studio is my wife, my dear partner in ministry, Alexandra. Thank you for joining us today. I've been to many, many pastoral conferences, and many times the banner over the stage where all of the pastors was, were gathered, or the camp meetings, was a, a banner that said no longer doing business as usual. I always wondered what that meant because it seemed to me that throughout all of that meeting, everything was done as it normally was done. The same prayers were prayed, the same actions were taken, the same hype was spoken. I remember in one meeting particularly, the pastor who was speaking described the church as a beautiful, brand-new automobile. And he said, this automobile represents the church. And all you have to do is get in it, turn the key on, and drive it away. And I wondered, how do you do that? Their answer for how you do that was to make sure the gas tank was full, and by that they meant Make sure that you know the plan that we have outlined for you in this conference. And then go drive the car away. Meaning, go work harder. Go work harder to bring the lost to Jesus. Go work harder to win all of the campaigns that we've asked you to engage in. Purchasing magazine subscriptions to one of the magazines of the church raise the necessary money for the church to be successful. All of that was included in what they meant. But I always found that the automobile was basically dead on arrival. When I turned the key on, there was no electricity. There was no power. And so they wanted me to get out of the car and shove it down the road, hoping that something would ignite. And I finally said, I'm not strong enough to shove the church down the road any further. I feel like I've been shoving the church down the road all my life. I won't do it anymore. Part of the deadness is represented by our eagerly going 
in prayer before the Father, asking him to fill the box, the mailbox. Isn't that what we say? Fill the box. Fill the box, Lord. And for the last two days, we've gone to the box and it's been empty. That's very symbolic for us of the emptiness of the church with all of its programs and all of its beautiful buildings and all of its wonderful education. There is something dramatically wrong in the American church today. We're going to talk about that today in very positive terms. We're sharing a book by Jackie Pullinger, Chasing the Dragon. She worked for two or three years and got nowhere. Made friends, people got to know her. She began to learn Cantonese, but no one came to Jesus. There was no power. That's what we're facing. To be clear, she was very much loving these people. She would go with them to court. She would get attorneys for them, pray with them, visit them in jail, pray with them in jail, stand in line all day so they could fill out an admission form for school, share her food, share her... someone live in her apartment with her? So that that person would not be sold into prostitution. She did not hold back at all in terms of loving and pouring out for these people and that is an essential part of sharing the gospel we do have to do that but it's a combination of that love with the power of the Holy Spirit and that's what we're going to share today so let's read we're reading from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pollinger She writes, Jesus did not promise running shoes in the hereafter to the lame man. He made him walk. He not only preached, but also demonstrated that he was God. He made blind men see, deaf men hear, and dead men return to life. Some Christians claim that these things still happened, and I certainly needed to find them. My missionary friends could not help me much. Most of them were well over 40 years old. Many had spent their lives in China and now felt lost. They did not expect people to be converted, and they explained this by saying that there was a spiritual cloud hanging over China that covered Hong Kong, too. Some missionaries had all sorts of cultural hang-ups that infected me, until I found myself worrying over such questions as to whether I should wear sleeveless summer dresses and whether it was wrong to go bathing on Sundays. I got in the ridiculous situation where I was more concerned to please these missionary friends than to find out what God wanted me to do. I did not belong to any missionary society, was not sponsored by any group or church at home, and in reality had all the freedom anyone could want. Yet I was feeling bound and ineffective. One day, I went to play the harmonium in the chapel. There, I found out that a Chinese couple was to lead the service. As soon as I saw them, I knew they had it. What it was, I did not know. 
but even watching them praying, I sensed a vitality, a power. Immediately, I wanted to know what made them so different. After the service, I made a beeline for the couple. They spoke hardly any English, and I knew hardly any Chinese. Yet soon, it was clear what they were trying to convey. You haven't got the Holy Spirit. A little indignantly, I replied that I had. They replied that I had not. And so the futile argument continued as we walked out of the walled city and back to my bus stop. Of course I have the Spirit, I thought to myself. I couldn't believe in Jesus if I didn't. So what were we arguing about? These people obviously had something I needed, which I had recognized even without understanding their sermon. They called it having the Holy Spirit, and I wanted to call it something else. I quit the quarrel over terminology, receiving the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, second blessing, or what have you. If God had anything more for me, I wanted to receive it. I would sort out the theological terms later. So I made an appointment to go to the young couple's flat the next day. I want to just stop the story and say, I don't have it either. I would say, of course I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Of course I speak in tongues. I don't have the power. That electric fire of the tongues, the power we don't have. And it's evidenced by the lack of response to the radio broadcast. It's evidenced by how hard we've had to work to push the ministry down the road, struggling to pay for it, walking in need often, crying out to God to rescue us and save us. And in his grace, he has consistently rescued us and saved us. He's paid the rent on the house. The National Prayer Chapel is at this point a house church, very small because we're not playing the church game anymore. We just want the Holy Spirit. We want his fire and we want his power to do the work of the gospel. So I understand her confusion saying, no, I was baptized. I, I have the Holy Spirit. I believe in Jesus. She finally had to say, wait a minute. It's plainly obvious. I've worked for three years. I've gained no converts to Jesus Christ. The other missionaries, they're not gaining converts to Jesus either. There's something wrong. You have to come to a place in your life where you acknowledge that something is wrong before you're willing to go after what the answer will be. We were talking about this last night, saying that part of what makes it so difficult to work in America is that the problem is opposite of the one she was struggling with. She was struggling with, how do I get these men and women off heroin and off opium and turn their heart to Jesus? 
Well, they desperately needed a change. They wanted off opium. They wanted off heroin. They'd been on some of them 15, 16, 17 years. It was killing them. And if someone could offer them a Jesus that delivered them, they wanted that Jesus. But in the American church, in the American culture, everybody has what they think they want and need. They have the vacations. They have they have what they need. They have their cars. They have their, their homes. They have a wonderful lifestyle. It's the opposite problem, but it's the same problem absence of God an absence of Jesus in America we're going to have to come to ourselves and recognize that what we think we have is empty that it's not working our churches aren't working in America oh the programs roll the, the events roll the super parties come the Christmas comes, Thanksgiving comes, Halloween. Everybody has their little programs where they reach out. But the lost aren't being saved and we're not making an impact in the culture. We're being defeated as our culture plunges into the pit of hell. Every unclean thing is rising up in our culture. to be a change listen to what happened so Jackie Pullinger goes to visit the apartment where these Chinese missionaries live the couple she writes their flat proved to be a one-room affair exactly like thousands of flats all over the colony of Hong Kong there was one table and on it was placed a plate of oranges and a plate of wet flannels. The oranges are a traditional Chinese food for celebration. They were for when I had received the Holy Spirit, while the flannels were for me to cry into. Whatever was going to happen next was obviously meant to be a very emotional experience. My heart began to bump a bit because I was not all sure what to expect. Then I sat down and the couple laid their hands on my head, saying over and over again in pidgin English, Now you begin speaking. Now you begin speaking. Now you begin speaking. But nothing happened. They thought I was going to burst into the gift of tongues, but it had not worked. Some of the West Croydon group in England had spoken in tongues, and I had heard of other friends who had received this gift but no one had ever been willing to discuss it. The idea of a new language in which you could speak fluently and express all the thoughts of your heart to God was wonderful, but I thought that it was something that you had to be rather advanced and spiritual to get. I shut my mouth firmly. If God was going to give me this gift, he was going to do it, not me. Now you begin speaking. Now you begin speaking. I was acutely embarrassed and began to get cross with them. I felt hotter and hotter and more and more uncomfortable. Here I was, not speaking in tongues, and they were going to be so disappointed that nothing had happened. They need not have prepared the wet flannels and the oranges. They were not going to need either plate. 
Eventually, I could not stand it any longer, so I opened my mouth to say, Help me, God, and then it happened. As soon as I made the conscious effort to open my mouth, I found that I could speak freely in a language I had never learned. It was a beautiful, articulate tongue, soft and coherent, and that there was a clear speech pattern with modulated rise and fall. I was never in any doubt that I had received the sign that I had asked for, but there was no accompanying exaltation. I had imagined being lifted up into praise and glory, but it was a most unemotional experience. The Chinese pair were delighted that I had spoken, although a little surprised that I was not in a flood of tears. However, they, they cried to make up for it, and their old mother had a good weep too. I still felt extremely embarrassed and left their house as soon as I could. I was very glad that this experience had not happened to me in front of British people. <laughs> as I got to the door, they said, Oh, you can expect the other gifts of the spirit to appear now. At that time, I did not understand what they meant. Every day for the next week or so, I waited for the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy to pop up. These were the only other gifts of the spirit I had heard about, although I now know that there are nine. I knew that in England, two of the ministers I most respected used these gifts, and they were certainly the most effective in their ministry. I also knew that there was an MP's wife who had the gift of healing. They followed Bible teaching carefully, so there was no doubt in my mind as to the rightness of the gifts or their usefulness but I did not know how you knew when you had received them. How do you know if you have healing? I remained puzzled, too, that I was still very cool about this sp great spiritual event. I had read books like They Speak in Other Tongues, which left me with the impression that this experience should make me walk on the mountaintops or sit on a cloud brimming over with love. I wondered if I had not got the right thing. Maybe it was all vastly overrated, anyway. I went around Hong Kong trying to find someone who would talk to me about it, but no one would. Missionary friend said darkly, Something very dangerous happened in China, and there was a split between the groups. Even more surprising, the Pentecostal churches would not talk about it. I went to their services. They still retained the noise, the hand clapping and the repeated amens and hallelujahs, but the gifts of the Spirit were absent. The Pentecostal missionaries explained that they had made a pact with the evangelicals not to discuss these things because they could not agree about them. They agreed to talk only about Jesus. But I could see that the gifts were in the Bible. They came from God, so how could they be dangerous? As months passed, I began to dismiss the whole subject. This experience had not patently changed my Christian life. In fact, if anything, life became even more difficult about this time. I was still rushing around the walled city, going to some kind of Christian meeting every night, trying with every ounce of my being to help people, but nobody seemed to have been helped. I felt cheated. Who do they think they are? I thought when I first heard about the Willens, an American couple 
Their young daughter, Suzanne, and companion, Gail Castle, had just arrived in Hong Kong and were going to start a prayer meeting. What cheek? Hong Kong doesn't need another prayer meeting. I'm already going to one of those every day of the week, anyway. They've only just come. They should wait to see the church situation first. It was two years since I had left England, a year since I had supposedly received the gift of the Spirit. I felt that I was quite an authority on prayer meetings in the colony. But my clarinet pupil's mother, Claire Harding, urged me to go to the meeting, saying it would be charismatic. This new term described a meeting where they expected the various gifts of the Spirit, the charisma, to be manifested. Well, I'll just go for a few weeks until I've learned all about it. Then I'll go back to the other meetings, I told Claire. And so I was introduced to Rick and Jean Stone Willens. Do you pray in tongues, Jackie? I was shocked by Jean's American forthrightness. No English person would be that direct. Well, no, actually, I replied. I haven't found it that useful. I don't get anything out of it, so I've stopped. It was a relief to discuss it with someone. But Jean would not be sympathetic. That's very rude of you, she said. It's not a gift of emotion. It's a gift of the Spirit. You shouldn't despise the gifts of God that he has given to you. The Bible says that he who prays in tongues will be built up spiritually. So, never mind what you feel. Just do it. Then she and Rick made me promise to pray daily in my heavenly language. They insisted that the Holy Spirit was given in power to the early church to make effective witnesses to the risen Christ. Then to my horror, they suggested that we pray together in tongues. I was not sure if this was all right, since the Bible that people should not at all speak about aloud in tongues at the same time. They explained that St. Paul was referring to a public meeting where an outsider coming in would think everyone was crazy. We three would not be offending anyone and would be praying to God in the language he gave us. I could not get out of it. So we prayed, and I felt silly, saying words I did not understand. I felt hot. And then to my consternation, they stopped praying while I felt impelled to continue. I knew already that the gift, this gift, although holy, was under my control. I could stop and start at will. I would have done anything not to be praying out loud in a strange language in front of strange Americans. But just as I thought I would die of self-consciousness, God said to me, Are you willing to be a fool for my sake? I gave in. All right, Lord. This doesn't, doesn't make sense to me, but since you've invented it and given it to me, it must be a good gift. So I'll go ahead in obedience and you teach me how to pray. After we finished praying, Jean said she understood what I had said. 
God had given her the interpretation. She translated, It was beautiful. My heart was yearning for the Lord and calling as from the depths of a, of a valley stream to the mountain top for him. I loved him and worshipped him and longed for him to, to use me. It was a language so much more explicit and glorious than any I could have formulated. I decided that if God helped me to pray like that when I was praying in tongues, I would never despise this gift again. I accepted that he was helping me to pray perfectly. Every day, as I had promised the Willans, I prayed in the language of the Spirit, 15 minutes by the clock. I still felt it to be an exercise. Before praying in the Spirit, I said, Lord, I don't know how to pray or whom to pray for. Will you pray through me? And will you lead me to the people who, who you want? And I would begin my 15-minute stint. Yes, so notice she wasn't just praying in tongues with no idea what she was even praying about. She was praying specifically for the salvation of the lost. She said, will you pray through me? And will you lead me to the people who want you? And then she would pray in tongues for 15 minutes. Now, after about six weeks of doing this, she says, I noticed something remarkable. Those I talked to about Christ believed. I could not understand it at first and wondered how my Chinese friends had so suddenly improved or if I had stumbled on a splendid new evangelistic technique. But I was saying the same things as before. It was some time before I realized what had changed. This time, I was talking about Jesus to people who wanted to hear. Yes. I had let God have a hand in my prayers, and it produced a direct result. Instead of my deciding what I wanted to do for God and asking his blessing, I was asking him to do his will through me as I prayed in the language he gave me. Now I found that person after person wanted to receive Jesus. I could not be proud. I could only wonder that God let me be a small part of his work. And so the emotion came. It never came while I prayed, but when I saw the results of these prayers, I was literally delighted. I began to get to know the Willenses better, and they became wonderful friends and counselors. The bonds of Christian conventions burst, and I found once more the glorious freedom to live that we have in Christ Jesus. At my conversion, I had accepted that Jesus had died for me. Now I began to see what miracles he was doing in the world today. Alexandra, this is exactly where we find ourselves. I'm praying 15 minutes every day in the Spirit, and I'm praying for this radio listening audience. I'm praying for you who are listening right now. You, yes. I'm praying for you. Do you want to hear? Do you want the power of the Spirit? Do you want this change in your life? I want this in my life. I want this tremendous change where the Holy Spirit comes in power and leads me to the person or 
man or woman, who wants to know Jesus. I don't want to simply shovel out another radio broadcast. I'm asking Jesus to cause men and women that he's called to listen to this broadcast and turn their heart toward Jesus and be baptized in the Holy Spirit to be healed physically, to be changed. I think, Alexandra, we need to just take some time and pray for people right now. You came to do that? Go ahead. Okay. Um, If you need to be prayed for, if you're hungry for this change that we're talking about, call our producer, Brother Kevin, right now, 877-534-0780, and we will pray for you to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 877-534-0780. Lord Jesus, I don't have the words to pray. I don't have the ability to win. Lord, I am at a total dead end, and I'm waiting upon you, Jesus. I can't break the demonic power that rules over Washington, D.C. Only you can do that. And it must happen by the power of your Spirit. So on this memorable day of destruction in America, we come asking for the power of your Spirit. To be released in our lives in great power and for the power of the Holy Spirit to be released in the lives of those listening to this broadcast. Lord Jesus, we wait upon you for you are the Lord, the Almighty. Lord, thank you. I pray in your name. Amen. Brother Kevin, any phone calls? Phone lines are wide open. 877-534-0780. Is it fear that stops you? Is it pride? Is it self-sufficiency? You think you've got it all together and you don't need any more from God? What's blocking you? Why would the phone lines not be jammed with men and women saying, please, pastors, pray for me. I need more of Jesus. I need the presence of the Holy Spirit in great power. Do you need the Holy Spirit? Do you need him to take over and run your life? Do you need him? Brother Kevin, any phone calls? Okay, we're going to close this. We're not going to accept any phone calls. 
and we're going to say, what are you going to do? You were offered. You were offered intercession and prayer for the gifting of the Holy Spirit and great power in your life. And you have refused. So we're going to go on reading. We're reading from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. Where do you come from? The slight, sallow-faced youth stared terrified as four members of the famed 14K Triad Gang advanced menacingly toward him. In gang parlance, they were asking him to which black society he belonged. He could not reply. He was trembling, and his breath came in short gasps. Not talking then? Ah Ping, the spokesman, jeered at him and stepped closer until he was at kicking distance. There was no escape. The boy and his tormentors all knew what was coming. He was trapped on one of the walled city alleys with the wall behind and the gangsters in front. They taunted him, teasing out his fear, advancing in ghastly slow motion. They were enjoying their captive's terror, his cringing body. The first blow came with amazing speed and ground into the boy's ribs. Chinese boxers are skilled, their movements supple, their kung fu training affects a litheness and economy of action that is precise and lethal. The victim fell to the ground as more blows rained on his stomach, his chest, his groin. He moaned, doubled up in agony, but still he did not speak. So they drove him along the street and kicked him while he crawled and then limped away. He would not be back. He had learned what happened when you walked down enemy territory unprotected. This made the triads feel good. They were secure and superior in their own streets. They controlled what went on and who was allowed through their turf. Before long, I found that the room I had rented for the youth club was right in the middle of the 14K patch. I had just watched the sickening scene, but I did not yet know how inevitable this beating up was according to triad tradition. Why did you do that? I demanded. Why? What has that boy done to you? I suddenly felt rather unwell. Ah Ping shrugged. Probably nothing, he conceded but the corners of his mouth turned down disdainfully. He could not identify himself or show his reason for being here, so we got to teach him a lesson. He's perhaps from our enemies, the Ging Yu, and we got to let them know who's in power down here. I was learning. H.W.E. Heath, one of the former police chiefs in Hong Kong, wrote in 1960, Triad activities have been noted in the official law and police reports of Hong Kong for the past 116 years. For the past 113 years, special ordinances and related legislation have been created in attempts to deal with the problem. The triad societies are still with us. In its earliest phases, the triad society was a Chinese secret society whose members were bound by oath to overthrow the foreign conquerors of their country and restore the ancient ruling house of China, the Ming Dynasty. 
Today, the historical triad society has degenerated into hundreds of separate triad societies. All claim to be part of the triad tradition, but in fact they are mainly criminal gangs who use the name and rituals as covers for their own evil purposes. To join the original triad society, it was essential to go through certain rituals. These included learning poems, handshakes and hand signs, and shedding and drinking blood. Sacrifices were laid down. When you entered the triad society, you swore to follow your brother forever. He became your dilo, or big brother. You became his silo, or little brother and you were then related forever. If you proved yourself, an aspiring triad would ask to follow you, and you became his big brother. Thus, the triad society was a pyramid of relationships. Inside each gang, there was a complicated hierarchy of ranks and duties. The officers had colorful names like Red Pole, White Paper Fan, and Grass Sandal. At other times, these officers were known simply by their numbers, as 489, 438, 426, and 415. Ordinary members were called 49 boys. All over Hong Kong, the triads inspired terror, which made it easier to run protection rackets. The walled city was the perfect place for them. They took the fullest advantage of its uncertain sovereignty, Two main gangs operated there, divided geographically by a certain street. There was a tacit understanding between the groups regarding territory and business. The Ging Yu controlled all the heroin dens, both the selling points and the smoking dens. They also ran protection rackets and controlled prostitution east of Old Man Street. Far more feared were the brothers of the 14K, which was a relative newcomer amongst the traditional triad societies, having been formed in China in 1949. It derived its name from number 14 Powa Street, Canton, where it was organized to support the Chinese nationalistic cause. It was reputed to have 100,000 members worldwide at the time, 60,000 in Hong Kong alone. I understood that it controlled all opium dens, gambling, blue films, child brothels, illegal dog restaurants, and protection rackets on the west side of the city. It was highly decentralized, with each area gang leader looking after his particular patch. However, they could call on each other for help when needed. They all knew the main office bearers and referred to members of related gangs as cousins. Within a matter of minutes, a triad could call out a dozen brothers, and within hours, several hundred could be ready for a fight. Whereas the non-triads slipped in and out of the place, praying not to be stopped, those committed to the 14K, or the Ging Yu, walked abroad only in their own territory. I used to pick my way over all the streets and made a point of learning every exit until I was more familiar with the place than the gangsters themselves, who were necessarily limited to one half of the city. The triads that I knew were certainly criminals, but to some extent they followed the old maxim that there is honor among thieves. 
In return for absolute obedience, the Dilo promised to look after his silo. If the little brother was imprisoned, the big brother made sure that inside prison he got food, drugs, and protection. Not that all triad members took drugs. Drug taking was frowned on because it lessened their usefulness. In fact, it was our shared concern for the addicts that would later place me at the same tea table as one of the triad bosses. It was no surprise to me when I learned that Christopher was about to be initiated into the 14K. How else could he walk on certain streets if he belonged to no gang? How else could he retaliate when wronged without a group of brothers to fight for him? Christopher had been attending the youth club regularly, but he now carefully avoided me. Every time I tried to approach him, he disappeared into the maze. He had started to gamble and was hanging around well-known criminals. However, he had a conscience about this, and he did not want to let me see what he was doing. There came the day, though, when I trapped him. We met head-on when I was carrying my heavy piano accordion, which was large enough to prevent Christopher from passing me. We were in one of the tiny passages where retreat was impracticable. He was wedged in, and I asked him to carry the instrument for me to the repair shop. As we walked, I talked to him in my pigeon Cantonese. I asked him, Christopher, why do you think Jesus came into the world? Who do you think he came into the world for? He did not reply. Was it for rich or poor people? I continued. That's easy. I know that one. He came for poor people. His school teachers would have been happy. But does he love good people or bad people? I probed. Jesus loves good people, Miss Poon. It was a dismal catechism. He was hating this walk, this talk. You're wrong. Luckily, as he was carrying the accordion, I could wave my arms about. It helped to fill in the gaps in my vocabulary. Do you know, if Jesus were alive today, he'd be here in the walled city, sitting on the orange boxes, talking to the pimps and prostitutes down there in the mud. You're not supposed to tell Chinese people that they're wrong, because they will lose face. But I was longing for Christopher to understand. This was no time to be playing conventions. That's where he spent a lot of his time. In the streets with well-known criminals, not waiting in a neat clean shirts for the nice guys to turn up. Why did he do that? Christopher asked incredulously. It sounded as if he really wanted to know. Because, I said slowly, that is why he came. Not to save the good people, but to save the bad ones, the lost ones, those who have done wrong. Christopher stopped suddenly. He was clearly overwhelmed by what he had heard. By this time, we had walked out of the walled city, passing the street market where people were hawking everything from plastic slippers to pressed duck. He said he wanted to hear some more, so we left the accordion in the repair shop nearby and found a public bench by the traffic roundabout. I told him the story of Naaman, the army commander afflicted with leprosy, and finished up by saying, It's so simple. All you have to do is come to Jesus to be washed clean. I turned to Christopher to see if he understood. The traffic was roaring past us, 
People were yelling, as they always do in Hong Kong. Another plane came into land, flying a few feet over our heads as it skimmed the flyover and thundered onto the runway. Christopher heard nothing. He had his eyes shut, and he seemed to be talking quietly. He was not talking to me. He was admitting to Jesus how he had failed in his life, and was asking him to make him clean. Sitting by the dusty, noisy roadside, he became a Christian. There were many problems in store for Christopher. The next Saturday, he came back to the youth club. Bravely, he stood up in front of the others and said that the week before, he had not believed in Jesus. But now he knew him. The announcement was greeted at first with silence. It was such an extraordinary thing to say. Then came the jeers and taunts. Boys from bad homes did not become Christians. That was for good, educated, middle-class students. Christopher was joking. He was mad. But Christopher was not. He now refused to carry on with his triad initiation. He already had the book of poems, laws, and ceremonial dialogue to be learned before he could be accepted. He sent it back. To make such a stand was both very firm and very courageous. Such a thing had never happened before among those people. His decision was a breakthrough for me, too. Now I knew that it was not true about there being a cloud of unbelief over Hong Kong. Jesus was alive in Hong Kong just as much as in England, and those who looked for Jesus could find him. The change in Christopher was remarkable. He worked so well at his factory that he was promoted to the rank of supervisor. Instead of gambling sessions with the triads, he now spent his time at the youth club, and on Sundays he came to the evening service in the little Oiwa church. As I continued praying in the spirit, in tongues, in private, the results became apparent when more boys like Christopher made decisions to become Christians. We met together for Bible study and prayer anywhere we could, in the youth club room, in tea houses, in the streets, or in my home. One day when we were praying, one of them had a message in tongues. We waited, and then Christopher began to sing the interpretation. Astonishingly, this beautiful song came in English, which he hardly spoke. This is what he sang. O God, who saves me in the darkness, give me strength and the power so I can walk in the Holy Spirit, fight against the devil with the Bible, talk to the sinners in the world, make them belong to Christ. Another boy, Bobby, had the same interpretation, but in Chinese. He did not understand Christopher's English song, so he did not know what he spoke was a confirmation of God's message. Although the Christian group was growing, not all of them of the walled city boys were clear about why I was there. Many of them came to the youth club for what they could get out of it. When we went on Saturday picnics or camps, I did not make them pay. I paid for the coach and the rubber boats and the football boots and the roller skates and even for the picnics. 
they were not grateful and considered themselves underprivileged people and imagining that I had a wealthy organization behind me. They wanted to squeeze me for anything that was going. They regarded this as their right and were demanding and aggressive. Such was true of Ah Ping. I'm going to stop there. The same is true in a sense with this radio broadcast. We don't have a rich group behind us. We have a very small fellowship. And we certainly don't have a salary. So it's all by faith. And somehow there's the expectation, oh, I should be able to just turn the radio on and there it is every day. No. Every day is a miracle. Every day is a miracle of Jesus opening the way and saying, go one more day, go one more month. I'm very grateful to those of you who have not been entitled but have stepped forward and given generously. Without you, we would not be on the air. And we know it wasn't you, it was Jesus in you. I thank you. Now, we're almost out of time for this broadcast today. We have just a minute left. I invite you to write to us. You don't have to put a donation in when you write. We just want to hear from you. We want to hear what Jesus is doing in you. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. You can listen to this message again, as well as past messages. We've been reading from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger, and we'll continue tomorrow at the same time from 1 to 2. And this also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at National Prayer Chapel. And this Friday, we will have a sermon by Jackie Pullinger that will air during this time. Yes. Tune in. Listen to her. We love you all. We're entrusting you to Jesus and to his spirit. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. To the